Hey, welcome back to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. I'm Vince Colonnais alongside my friend Jason Nichols. This is a production of The Daily Caller, which means you can find this on The Daily Caller's YouTube channel. Please like and subscribe uh, to that Daily Caller YouTube channel so you can get the latest episode three times a week of this program, Vince and Jason Save the Nation. Or if you don't want to look at our ugly mugs on video, you can listen on the audio format on anywhere that you can get a podcast. Again, I'm Vince Colonnais, and this is Jason Nichols. Jason, what are you thinking about today, sir? Well, first of all, speak for yourself. I'm beautiful. I don't know. I mean, I got a little bit of grays now, uh, but right now I am absolutely gorgeous. But I will say that today there's so much going around in the world of reparations. As a matter of fact, uh, I believe that the UN Commissioner on Human Rights called for reparations around the world. So that would include countries other than the United States, France, Great Britain, Belgium, uh, talking about essentially how that should be something that's on the table and considered. Um, so for, I want to for talk- whom? For, for who? Who, uh, who does, this is the World Health Organization you said? No, the, the UN? UN. No, sorry, the UN. UN. Okay, so the UN wants to, um, is encouraging reparations globally for who? For uh, the victims of slavery and slave trades all around, and, and I'm assuming, uh, you know, certain forms of colonization around the world. We're also seeing, you know, micro examples of reparations, of course, in North Carolina, in Evanston, Illinois, uh, and, you know, even in our backyard at Georgetown University, where people are looking at different models for reparations. Now, this has been a discussion that's been around for a very long time. Yep. It hasn't really been taken seriously. And now people are actually starting to take a look at it. Of course, we know there's been H.R. 40 for decades, uh, first brought about by John Conyers. Uh, and now, uh, you know, it's made it out of committee uh, with Sheila Jackson Lee being the person who's pushing it. Uh, so I think this is a discussion that Americans need to have in good faith and actually go back and forth on the reasons why or why not. And also mm -hmm. have a discussion uh, about what it actually looks like or should it be studied so we can actually find out what does reparations actually look like? I think a lot of people think they know, they think they have an idea. They saw a Dave Chappelle skit and they think that they actually know what reparations would look like. But I think most people have no idea what it would look like. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that we need to discuss this uh, with all seriousness. 70% uh, of African-Americans are for reparations. Yep. Uh, a small but growing number of uh, white Americans are starting to support it. So I think it's it's something that should be discussed. And the president of the United States has actually showed some support for the study of reparations. He has not yeah. showed support for reparations, um, but he has shown some support for the study of reparations, which is what H.R. 40 calls for. So I just wanted to kind of get your initial reaction to some of the stories. I know I sent you one um, last night and I was wondering what your initial reaction was to reading that and some of the, the other stories that are out there about reparations. Well, let me let me start just by asking you some questions about this first. So sure. who do you think should receive reparations? How do we establish that they should receive it? And what should it look like? Should it be direct cash payments or should it be some sort of long-term program? And what would that look like? Well, see, I think that that's the thing that needs to be studied. <laughs> that's exactly what HR 40 is for, uh, is 
how should this work? Um, we know that, of course, census data and things like that were not very good for enslaved Africans at the time. Right. So, you know, some people may be like, I know my ancestors were enslaved. I just don't know who they were or, you know, or how this works. There's also people like my children, for example, who's, uh, you know, just to give you a quick family history about me, um, a good well, one portion of my family was free at the time of uh, emancipation. The other part of my family or another part of my family came from the Caribbean. Um, now, the other side of my family, my, my maternal side, I, I know that they were enslaved. I just don't know anything about them. I can't go past my grandparents. Right. Uh, or at least I'm sure I could do some research, but I, you know, thus far, it's not something that's known to me or to anyone else in my family. And then, uh, you know, my kids, you know, if you look at my, my children, my wife is also from the Caribbean. Her family was presumably, at least one part of her family was presumably enslaved, but, you know, they were enslaved by another country. <laughs> you know, they were enslaved by Spain. So um, it's, you know, and the other part of her family was, you know, probably white. So. Right. Uh, it's unclear, you know, would my children get reparations? Should they get the same reparations as some other child who all of their ancestors were enslaved and it's something that can be proven and they were enslaved here in the United States mm -hmm. um, when really there's only a small portion that at the time of emancipation that we can prove were enslaved in the United States? Um, I think that that's, you know, these are the questions that need to be answered. Yeah. Um, the other question, you know, is this just for slavery? Does it go beyond slavery into uh, the denials uh, of the opportunity to build wealth, you know, which goes into Jim Crow, which goes into lynching, which goes into housing discrimination that didn't end until 1968. Mm -hmm. So you got to think about housing discrimination was basically on the books until 1968 and for scale, uh, our former president was 22 at the time. He's a known housing discriminator, by the way. But anyway, he was 22 at the time when housing discrimination was outlawed. You know, uh, Joe Biden, who is, what is he, 77 now? Not sure. But either way, he was older than that. Right. Um, so these were, you know, the generation that was around at that time, uh, you know, could have potentially even bought a home at that time is still alive today. Mm -hmm. um, so the question, all of these questions are what need to be answered in a serious study by the right. government. Now, there have been some studies. There's a guy actually, uh, he's a German guy and he started this study. I was watching uh, an interview with him. And honestly, a lot of the people who have really studied this issue in the United States very seriously, besides African-Americans, have been Europeans, oddly enough. Um, and there's this guy, he's a German gentleman. His name is escaping me right now. But this German uh, gentleman was saying that he got interested in the issue of reparations because, you know, you hear and learn a lot about the Holocaust growing up in Germany. And my father grew up in Germany, non-military. 
And, you know, you hear about that all the time. And he had a Jewish neighbor who had been victimized by the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. This, this gentleman, not, not my dad. My dad did too, but this gentleman. And he found out later that this gentleman had received a pension by the West German government and then by Unified Germany uh, throughout his life. It was nowhere near an amount that would redress the kind of pain that he and his family experienced. But he right. did get some sort of financial payment uh, for the terrible wrong that was done to his to his family by the German people and by the German government. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he got interested in the issue of reparations and he actually um, studied it in the United States and he came up with an amount that he thought was owed. And I'll just give you uh, how he came up with this amount. Uh, so he took census data on the enslaved population between 1776 and, and 1860. Um, he looked at the hours that they worked, aggregated the hours that, that they worked, mm-hmm. the average wages at the time, and put on a modest 3% interest. And the amount that he came up with, you ready for this? <laughs> Hit me. $20.3 trillion. <clears throat> now, I don't think that that's possible to pay in one generation. And I'm not sure that cash, I, I'm actually against cash payments. I think cash payments would be a mistake. Um, and when you look at some of the models that we're seeing around the world, um, even in our own country, Evanston, Illinois, what they are doing is you must use, I think it, it's, uh, it goes to 16 families in the city. And you must use the money for home equity. So to pay off, to get more equity in your home Hmm. or to purchase your first home. You may not use that $25,000 for anything else. The funds are coming from marijuana taxes, from, from cannabis taxes. And their thinking was because Evanston is 17 percent black, but 71% of their marijuana arrests have been African-Americans. So as a way of kind of dealing with this, what they've decided was it makes sense for us to tax, uh, you know, something that we no longer consider a crime that people actually were punished by. And with those marijuana taxes, we are going to uh, now, uh, you know, redress some of the issues that we've had um, in terms of racial discrimination over generations. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much how, how they've gone about it. There are many different models. And we also have to remember that maybe it doesn't come from the federal government. Maybe it comes from financial institutions, many of which are still around, that benefited from slave labor. Many of them located in the North, not even in the South. So things like Wachovia Bank, you know, uh, many other financial institutions, New York Life, which insured, um, you know, enslaved Africans didn't didn't give them insurance. Insured, you know. I went like, to I went to college in 
I went to college in Pennsylvania. And I remember we used to call Wachovia walk all over you. <laughs> that's actually pretty good. Yeah. I'm going to use that. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah. Let me, so, so I'll jump in here and just give you some, some thoughts. Um, it's not, it's, I've had to read other people on this and other people's opinions and, and certainly listen to yours to think about this because it's not something that I've spent a ton of time thinking about. But I do think about sort of the obvious questions that should arise. And among them are the ones I asked you. It's like, how do you figure out who would qualify? Um, that seems like a pretty messy process, actually, as you just laid out, even in your own family. Uh, who sure. would qualify for something like this? Um, how would you even establish it, especially when it comes to the shoddy record keeping associated with uh, American chattel slavery and the extent to which we could even establish that somebody has a lineage that connects them to it. Um, and I guess the two, the two final questions are, uh, would it be productive? Would it be a good thing to do and actually improve the lives of Americans? Um, and finally, uh, what would it look like, as you mentioned, like, would it be direct cash payments um, or would it be some sort of wealth building exercise, which um, fundamentally sounds better to me? And I have a thought on this that I'll, I've, I've, got a, I've got an idea for it um, that uh, I can express in a moment. But my, I, I saw that there was, a, um, there was a debate done at one point, I think, in The Guardian between Ta-Nehisi Coates and Coleman Hughes on this subject. And the side that Coleman Hughes took on this is, is uh, that there shouldn't be um, sort of a broad scale reparations program. One of the things he was chiefly concerned with is that it would only exacerbate racial tension and racial animosity in the United States needlessly. And that that's not a good thing, that we shouldn't be in the business of uh, creating divisions along racial lines unnecessarily. He said that, um, you know, people who are still alive, and you mentioned them a moment ago, are people who uh, felt the, the scourge of the Jim Crow era in the United States. And it would actually be provable and sensible, in his view, to think about, okay, if there's anyone who would qualify for reparations or some sort of payment for what was, um, for the persecution they endured, it would be survivors of the Jim Crow era. So um, people who lived through that and uh, were oppressed economically do actually have a, a present day grievance that they can level and um, be compensated for. And then the position he also moves on to is like, you know, there's the idea that um, descendants of people who were wronged would be given anything is disconnected from the people who were ultimately wronged. Because you know, that Americans alive today were not enslaved. That's, and this is one of the obvious, obviously the primary arguments against reparations that, that the American, no American who's alive today, um, unless you were obviously enslaved, as you mentioned, like through human trafficking or something like that, but in terms of broad scale government endorsed slavery in the United States, um, nobody, nobody who's living has experienced that. And it is, you know, it's, I, I've always kind of thought that we should be, and this goes for all things, that we should be ultimately um, judged on our own, right? Judged on our own merits and our own accord. And who would, and, and also who would pay for this and who would receive it is really important. 
Um, you know, one third, you mentioned 70%. I, I, my, that's my understanding too, that one third of black Americans uh, are opposed to reparations program. Um, is their voice not important in this? And, you know, is, are they to be sort of patted on the head and then just given reparations anyway, despite their opposition to it? I, I just think it's a, it's a complex question, but I guess to, and finally, I'll, I'll add the, the idea that I had. Remember, I mentioned a moment ago that, you know, uh, Coleman Hughes was arguing that, you know, Jim Crow era people um, could actually make a strong case that they were economically harmed and therefore are entitled to some reparations. I was I was thinking thinking that, like you mentioned equity, it seems like wealth creation is the primary thing that you were, we're talking about and should be talking about. Um I don't know if it'd be possible, but if if somebody is Jim from the Jim Crow era, what if we had like a what if we extended VA loan eligibility and made it so that there was preferential loan treatment for people who are from the, of that era, so that they could more easily qualify in order to build equity in order to own something that they could hand off to their relatives, have some you know actually owned land property, which is a primary wealth driver in the United States. Seems like a good start, actually. It seems like the kind of thing that I think a lot of Americans could get behind without much racial division being at play, which is really important to avoid, I think. So I, I think <clears throat> I think there there are so many things that I that I am thinking after what you said, and, and I really appreciate how um, how I think honest and seriously you are taking the, the topic. Um, there are many people in the conservative realm who, you know, don't take it seriously or they get angry or, you know, all these kinds of things. And, and I really appreciate this, um, this conversation. So firstly, in terms of racial discord uh, being sown by reparations, mm -hmm. Um, I think that that is not the best argument. And the reason I say that is because, first of all, we've given other people reparations, deservingly so. Yes, but, um, the, but let, and, me, let me stipulate on those. But uh, you mentioned it a moment ago, too, about sort of Holocaust survivors receiving reparations. We did it with Japanese internment. Uh, there were obligations that were failed completely by the United States to chattel slaves, uh, former slaves. Um, those were all people who who actually sure. experienced that right um but see this is this is the thing about um well first let, let me let me sure um finish that that last thought and that is that though um you know, people will say that this will cause racial discord. First of all, anybody who feels that way, I think already has some issues around race. But that aside, you know, I think that that would was part of the argument against desegregating schools. That was part of the argument against every advance that African Americans said, oh, this is going to cause racial discord. This is going to cause problems. No, the problems are the racial discord that already exists. That that's what what the problem is. It's not, you know, reparations is going to cause something that's not there, and we need to actually address that. And there are many ways to address that, but um, I don't think reparations for people who 
deserve that, I think um, there's no, that's not what will cause racial discord. And we already, as we can see, we're already racially divided. I think, and if anything, this could actually go towards healing. Um, I think one of the issues that I have with the argument that, you know, it didn't go like we, we just missed the boat. And so black people, you didn't get a life vest, swim on your own, learn to swim, you know? Um, and the problem is that whatever happened with your ancestors, you know, and, and I, I totally hear you on the argument about, um, about uh, Jim Crow survivors. I, I think that, that that's, a, that's a worthwhile argument and I, and I can hear that. But here's the thing about wealth. Wealth is transferred, which is why I'm against cash payments. I think cash payments, you get cash, you blow it. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what people do with money. When you get a bond or when you get things that are wealth generating assets, those things you actually grow and then pass on to your heirs. Um, your, your retirement accounts or whatever's left, those are things that you actually transfer. And African-Americans were completely left out of that because they didn't earn wages, they didn't own homes, they didn't own land. So therefore, for generations, and we did for generations going into Jim Crow, prevent them from doing that. Um, I think that they're still owed. So I, I'm actually, and this may be a bad metaphor or, uh, you know, analogy, I'll say. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking about, you know, coming from a family, you know, from a pretty prosperous middle-class uh, Black family, you know, probably abnormally prosperous, I would say, or at least on some parts of my family. One of the things that I know for like, you know, I have a medical doctor in my family. And, and one of the things is that doctors and hospitals have really high insurance. And it's because if they do something wrong and someone dies, they give judgments. Courts usually feel kind of sorry and give judgments to the surviving, you know, to the family members, not to the person who was actually injured because that person's no longer here. So my thing is, when you have people, it, it's sort of the same principle, that the people who are still here are still injured by slavery, economically, you know? And, and, I'm, and the argument that I'm gonna make, I'm not even gonna bring pain and suffering into this discussion. I'm bringing just the economics of it. We're economically injured, generation after generation, um, and they were not the people who experienced it. It's just like if you were operating on someone's kid or someone's grandfather or someone's wife and you botch it and you make a mistake and you mm -hmm. kill that person, you know, in some routine surgery or, or, or whatever, that yes, you owe the, the person's surviving family. You owe the person's surviving relatives. And maybe that's a, you know, that's not the best analogy, but I, I think that that's part of it. And it, it's, I think Ta-Nehisi Coates, one of the things that I've heard him say is essentially, if you are injured, if I hit you with a baseball bat, 
couple times, right? You know, there could be lingering injuries from that. So it's not just the initial hit. It's also the lingering issues that continue. And in some cases, if it were you, and let's say I hit you in the mouth and you can't work anymore, or I break your hands and you can't write anymore. Mm -hmm. How does that affect your daughter? How does that affect your wife? You know, how does that affect their abilities? You know, that could literally spiral your family into abject poverty because, you know, you can't work, your family is injured by that, you can't afford the beautiful new home you're getting, and then your daughter goes to, you move into another neighborhood, your daughter goes to poorer schools, her life outcomes are lower, right. and then it goes generation after generation spirals when Vince Colonnese was in a great place, but Jason Nichols came along with his baseball bat and ruined everything and something that that uh, extended generation after generation. So I guess I, there's a couple ways to look at this. One of them is you have to figure out how consequential slavery actually is for the current lifestyle of any black American. Right. So like yeah, you have to sure. you'd I, have to you have to like actually like come up with a way to factor that in, because, first of all, like let's not rob people entirely of their agency. Like that people are responsible for some percentage of the, their own outcomes. And, you know, there's a lot of luck in life for sure. There's there's the uh, the families that you come from. Um, I found that rich people, multi-generational old wealth, rich people become less impressive with each passing generation and uh, less capable of actually producing anything new or or uh, or interesting or innovative. Um, you know, so there's there's a human cost actually to wealth, which is like you become like dopier and dopier with each passing generation. Uh, which I'm, you know, I, I think it's it, when we assess like humanity, it's worthwhile to think about it, not just in terms of dollars, but also in terms of like the richness of the human spirit. I think that's really important. Um, and I'm not saying that as an excuse for people being poor. I just mean that it's it's just worth considering uh, the role that intergenerational wealth plays. The other other thing is um, there's plenty of plenty of white Americans, Americans of all colors who don't have any meaningful intergenerational wealth who, you know, assume their own loans for colleges because their parents couldn't uh, afford to pay to send them to college if they go to college at all, who don't get a meaningful inheritance, who don't get meaningful, you know, like, you know, property or anything like that. Um, and that is just, that's a product of sort of the growing wealth gap we have in the United States and not in those, in, in the cases I'm referring to, the product of some sort of long lasting ramifications from slavery. You, a world in which we start, sort of creating wealth in 2021 through a government, or as you mentioned, potentially a private public partnership or a private thing for a certain for a certain sector of society based on ethnicity, um, would it would naturally exclude an entire, an impoverished sector of society that um, won't have any hand up like that. Um, and that seems like a big deal in 2021. And then one other thing I'll think about, and I don't know if it's controversial to say this, but I'll say it anyway. Um, just to get your thoughts about it. How are black Americans faring versus black people worldwide? And is it useful to look at that as a rationale for whether or not reparations is a good idea in the United States, right? So if you look at the average income of sub-Saharan Africa in particular, you know that it's dirt poor. It's completely poor. It's like, I think it's less than $800 a year is the average annual income in sub-Saharan Africa. 
That's not the case in the United States. It's stratospherically higher uh, across all quintiles of of um, all Americans. And again, for black Americans. And it is useful to compare um, sort of the what black Americans have access to in the United States in terms of wealth and um, and opportunity versus the rest of the planet. And if we'd make that comparison, I feel like you begin the process of sort of defeating a case for reparations in modern day America, because America for all of its problems gives tremendous advantages to every single person who lives in this country versus almost anywhere else, actually versus anywhere else in the world. So in terms of white Americans who are struggling, um, I absolutely think that there are things that need to be done to make it better for all Americans. There's no questions about that. That's why we need, you know, thinking about this infrastructure bill, for example, that's why we need, uh, you know, more allowances for childcare. This, that's why we need a $15 minimum wage. That's why we need, you know, lots of things that I think uh, will help Americans around the country, regardless of race. You know, we need to raise the bottom floor uh, for all Americans. And so I'm 100% about that, you know, 100% in favor of certain things that are going to help um, working class and poor Americans and middle class Americans. Um, the difference is, again, you know, they weren't hit with the baseball bat. You know what I mean? If you, and it's not to say, you know, there there are certain advantages um, that came with whiteness in this country. So I'll give you a couple of examples, you know? Um, and, and, and a lot of them are after slavery. So when you look at, for example, FHA loans, so the FHA in 1934, we can talk about the New Deal and the way that it kind of screwed black people over and over again. Let me, but, if, I, if I can, let me just, I don't, I don't mean interrupted, but I, I understand the line of reasoning that you're, you're engaging in for sure. But what you're talking about involves a lot of pre-1965, definitely. And, sure. and, I, and I completely see the point on the, the, um, the racial uh, injustices at play there. I just mean this century. I mean, how can I don't think it's meaningful to look at somebody in Appalachia and say that they have white privilege when half their family's addicted to opioids, they live in hard conditions, they can barely make rent. I mean, I don't I don't think it is a meaningful thing to 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 suggest that white privilege has played a meaningful role in their life. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I'm well, first of all, I didn't mention white privilege. I didn't yeah, say yeah. anything about white privilege. No, I know. I, um, I don't you didn't you didn't use the phrase white privilege, but I, I uh and I'm sorry, maybe I inferred something from what you were getting at, but the idea was that um, that they had certain advantages that others don't. And I just mean in modern America, I don't think that's the, the case at all. Yeah, I, I again, I'm going to disagree with that. Um, and I think that we can go, we can go down a real long rabbit hole about um, how African-Americans are still at a disadvantage um, in a way you know, we can talk about many different studies in terms of 
literally things that, you, you know, most people probably don't think about. Um, and there was a really interesting, and I, maybe I have a sixth sense of humor. It was a little bit funny, um, but there was an article in the New York, uh, excuse me, in the Washington Post years ago that I remember reading. And it was about how African-Americans are discriminated against. It was all these studies that were done, how they don't need to see you to discriminate against you. They, they read your name or listen to your voice on the phone and they judge your race. And 80% of the time they're correct with, with the voice. You know, they hear me, you know, and I always used to joke in my classes to, to my black students, I'd be like, you ain't fool fooling anybody with that phony white voice. When you get, hello, how are you? Like, you know, you're not phoning, fooling anybody. Like, um, that usually they judge your race based on how you sound on the, on the telephone. And that can lead to housing discrimination, job discrimination, other types of discrimination. And they've done studies where they've, you know, uh, given basically exact equal uh, resumes and they look at the name and, you know, the, the white resume, the white sounding name usually gets a callback and the black sounding name doesn't regardless of how qualified that black sounding name is. And that goes back to some of the stereotypes that people hold about black people. So with all of that, if you are a white person from Appalachia, you're not going to, to experience that uh, kind of discrimination. Your community <clears throat> may you know, be in a difficult place, you're rural and all of that. And I would say that those populations are smaller than, uh, you know, proportionally than a lot of the, the poverty that affects black people. And the reason is because of this generational issue. There's no question about and what you want to know, you mentioned the opioid crisis, there's so much going through my head right now. But you mentioned the opioid crisis, you want to know why African Americans weren't affected as badly by the opioid crisis. Part of Probably. the reason fewer subscriptions for back pain is that prescriptions <laughs> no that i mean that's it is fewer that, prescribed narcotics i mean right that is that is true and the reason for that is because studies have shown that physicians don't take black people's pain seriously or they think literally this this is a this is real scientific studies that say that physicians believe black, many physicians, not all, but there's a sizable amount of physicians and nurses who believe that black people experience pain differently. So they don't take their, you know, you could be going in saying, I am in excruciating pain and they're like, eh, you'll be okay. You probably just want some drugs. I've heard, I've heard person, this, yeah. There's a whole lot more empathy. You know, when you say you're in pain, we believe you. So we're going to make sure that you are not in pain. And the ironic part of it was that actually hurt white America, you know, uh, more in this particular case. Um, and we noticed that there has been a whole lot more empathy in treating this as a public health issue than many other uh, war on drugs types of responses to black people who are essentially doing the same thing with illegal narcotics, which is numbing and you and I have talked about this numbing some sort of either physical or emotional pain. Um, there's a lot more like, 
how do we deal with this? How do we help these people? Oh, the drug companies are, are liable. And, they, and I believe all of that. Um, it's just interesting how that was not the case for African-Americans. Um, and I think we can, we can agree, you know, getting back to reparations. I, I, I really believe that there's, it's really difficult in my opinion, when you talk about the disparities in health, the disparities yeah. in the environment, the disparities, even, you know, some things that were fixed a long time ago. Like uh, if you read Kevin Cruz, his article, he's written several times about highways and right. how highways were literally built to keep communities separate and segregated um, and places where they would put you know, black communities were areas that were low lying. So they were more um, susceptible to floods and all these kinds of things um, that still to this very day affect African-Americans. To say that African-Americans are not experiencing or that their experiences are not discriminatory or don't, the things that happened 50 years ago don't affect African-Americans today, I think is not the right way to look at this. Yeah, I mean, I think you you made a good case for, and you are making a good case for the idea that racial discrimination still exists. I agree, and um, on and a I systemic don't, level, and I don't. Yeah, but not in every system, though. I think it's meaningful to say that. I think there are examples of where things have been detected, right? Like what you mentioned, health health disparities, maternal mortality uh, is a big one that um, I think is deserving of a lot more attention. Uh, and the rate at which black mothers die in childbirth um, is deserving of a lot more attention in terms of figuring out why that is and how to and how to stop it. Um, the other is the pain threshold questions that you just raised. Um, I've always found that fascinating and uh, and it's worthwhile to obviously take a look at it. But I mean, my point is like, you know, I, I just think that the idea that uh, we are going to say that, like, you know, the suffering white person is like is like has got some sort of white privilege, like they're not even making the phone calls you're talking about. They're not doing the interviews you're talking about. You know what I mean? It's like that's it's just a different oh, it's just a completely can, different world. Can I interject one thing? Yeah, because <laughs> I, I never I never finished the thought um, earlier. And, and just when I was saying that I have uh, kind of a sixth sense of humor was that in that Washington Post article, there were white people who were perceived to be black based on their names. And they were talking about how they were experiencing discrimination. And yeah. a lot of it were, were names that I don't even think of as black names. Like it would be like, I think there was a guy named Fred Williams yeah. or something. I, you know what I mean? And he was like, people think I'm black because my name is Fred Williams. I got to tell you, you know, something. I got to tell you something. <laughs> I just did an interview with a guy this past week um, on my radio show. And I thought, that his name well i don't know what his name i don't know how to pronounce his name i didn't get a pronouncer ahead of the interview but i was his name is t-e-r-r-e-l-l -L. so i was calling him terrell when yeah, he came on like, was it terrell and, and then when he got on i heard his voice and i said oh this is a white dude like so i heard as he as he started talking and so halfway through the interview, so I, judging that voice. I, I consciously, yeah, because like everybody can, I don't know why it's yeah, like, sure. we shouldn't, we shouldn't pretend like people don't do this. I mean, it's obvious. It's like, you can, you can kind of develop a, a little bit of a profile of somebody by hearing their voice, but I heard, I heard him. He sounded like a white guy. 
So halfway through the interview, I changed it to to Terrell because I was like, I'm pretty sure he probably goes by Terrell. I didn't know. <laughs> but if he sounded like he was a black dude, I would have stuck with Terrell. But that wasn't he wasn't a black dude. So I didn't know what to do. So I was just like, I just call him Terrell now. Like I yeah, definitely well, changed changed his name during the interview. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is Terrell whiter than than Terrell? Like I, I don't know. Honestly, I have no, I know. <laughs> No idea. I've never met a white dude named Terrell or Terrell. You know what I mean? Um, uh, but I do, you know, uh, think that there are certain, uh, certain circumstances. There was a woman's name. I'm forgetting her name, but it was like, you can't be white with that name. <laughs> Fred Williams to me sounds like that could be anybody. You know what I mean? Like, that, sure. you know, you know, <laughs> Mike Johnson or Fred Williams. Like I wouldn't. Can't. Can I would probably I ask you, more assume that was a black person, but I wouldn't, you know. Pretty funny. Can I can I ask you to um talk to men to sorry to discuss what I mentioned before about if um if you were to compare the well-being of black Americans in terms of wealth to the wealth of of the Af, Af, African descendants across the planet, mm -hmm. um is that a reasonable comparison to make when you're thinking about okay? How do we do, should we do reparations when black Americans have extraordinary advantages that most African descendants don't around the planet? So I do not think that that's a, a, a good comparison. And I'll explain that right after we take this quick break. So I don't think that that's a, a good comparison. Number one, we are the most powerful and wealthy nation around the world. So of course our scale is, is gonna be higher uh, than some of the poorer nations. You know, if you're gonna compare us to Jamaica like that, like why would we ever compare ourselves to Jamaica or compare ourselves to Haiti or compare ourselves uh, to many other countries? And, and one of the reasons that some of those countries are um, not doing quite as well or in sub-Saharan Africa um, is because of colonialism. And one of the things, you know, it's meant, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that in it, when we're talking about reparations, because Haiti, one of the reasons Haiti is so poor, and that's not to say that Haiti hasn't made its own mistakes. Let me be clear about that. Um, I think Haiti needs to acknowledge in many cases that some of its situation excuse me, is due to mistakes made by the Haitian people. Um, but the, the vast majority of the reason Haiti is the way it is, the reason it's so incredibly poor, even before the, uh, the earthquake, before uh, some of the dictatorships, was because Haiti, after getting, gaining their independence, was made to pay uh, reparations to France for literally freeing itself. You know, the French and, you know, with the help of the Americans and other countries, literally, first of all, most countries didn't acknowledge Haiti as, as a nation. That was one of their things um, where they did not acknowledge it. And they were made to play the French, you know, billions upon billions of dollars because the French were like, hey, you owe us because we had so much money coming out of Haiti. And unless you want to fight a, an endless war against a world power, 
um, which you could eventually lose and lose your freedom again, you're going to pay us. Um, so reparations have been paid by African people around the world, but it's usually the other way around, in, in, including in our backyard in Washington, D.C. Um, President Lincoln signed after the Emancipation Proclamation, after, you know, uh, freedom for Black people, the uh, enslavers, the, the slaveholders in Washington, D.C., um, there were about 900 of them, each received $300 per enslaved African that they held. Um, now, $300 at the time, uh, today would be worth somewhere around $8,000. So they were receiving, you had, you know, five people, you know, enslaved, you know, it's $40,000, if my math is correct. Um, so again, there have been reparations paid and a lot of, just because these nations pulled out of these, these black nations doesn't mean they still don't exploit the resources. So one of the wealthiest areas, you, you mentioned sub-Saharan Africa, one of the mm -hmm. wealthiest areas in sub-Saharan Africa in terms of natural resources would be central Africa. Um, I believe it's cobalt that is there in, in addition to gold and other things, cobalt, if, if that's the mineral, I might, I might be mixing it up with another mineral, but it's in all of our devices. So if you have a phone. So rare, one, you're no. talking about rare, rare earths is what you're referring to, right? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Rare, well, rare earth I, mining is like essential to all, like all these devices. And right, I bet so, you, I bet you uh, China is running the show there, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, China, you know, has definitely done certain things and moved into to Africa for their political influence. Um, you know, when they when they vote for things, you know, like recognizing Taiwan, they have all of Africa's um, support or a lot of Africa's support because they went into Africa and gave them loans at little to no interest, which no other country would do. Um, and allowed many of these places to modernize and develop their countries in ways that the United States didn't help them do, to do and other places didn't help them to do after, you know, uh, having ruined a lot of those countries and taken their resources uh, essentially almost by force. That's what colonialism was. So I, I think a lot, you know, um, I think, you know, Dr. King, said, you know, it's a cruel jest to ask a bootless man to pull himself up by his own bootstraps, you know? Um, and I think that that's what we have to talk about when we talk about the African world. Yeah. So people say, well, African-Americans are better off than, than other countries. That would be literally like, if you have your new house and there's shoddy construction and a part of your house collapses, you know, and the guy next door comes by and says, you only had one room collapse. That, that house collapsed completely. And you're like, that doesn't matter. We're talking about my house right now. We're talking about you owe me for your shoddy construction and you need to rebuild this. It's not about, you know, what happened at the other house. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Although I think it there is a benefit to being in the, in the center of of um of the greatest empire. nation on the greatest nation on the planet no it's i just think that like 
you know, I think it was Larry Elder who said it, like something like, you know, if, if African-Americans, uh, if black Americans were their own country, if the 13% of the country that's, that is black had its own country, mm-hmm. it'd be like, I think the 15th richest country on the planet. Um, yeah, that's, that I, I've heard that before. And that is absolutely um, wrong in many ways. Um, and I think, and I would suggest anybody who has an issue with that, you know, or who believes that. I think they should read two books. Um, one is by a friend of mine whose name is Jared Ball. And he's to the left, way to the left of me, but and it, it, just a brilliant guy. Yeah. And he wrote a book called The Myth of Black Buying Power. And you can actually download it for free because he's a serious socialist. So like, you can buy it, you can download it for free. I would look it up. <laughs> I respect uh, that, I would, by the way. If, 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 you are, if you've gone full tilt socialism, if you're giving away your book for free, you're living the dream. You're, you're living your, your, your ideology out. <laughs> well, by the way, there's nothing in socialism that says you don't earn a wage. That's the misunderstanding. Like, like you still earn wages in a socialist society. There's never been that. But we can go down a rabbit hole with that. I don't want to do that. So, but I, I think the myth of black buying power. Right. There's this idea. Well, if you didn't buy a fancy phone or if you didn't buy Jordans, then you know you would have all this money to do all these important things with. Uh, which I think is just a way to victim blame black people. I guess there is some truth to that, though. I mean, if yeah. you if you waste money, I've done it. I've wasted First money. All, I've wasted money on frivolous products that I, were total indulgences. And I've definitely looked back and gone, man, if I had just like bought a share of some company for that price, that would have been like way more meaningful and better for me in the long term. So, well, I mean, there's, know, there's some truth to that. I, I don't, yeah, you, well, it doesn't have to be like, like a complete binary. Like, no, that's totally false. Oh, that's totally true. Like that, that is real. Like if you waste your money on stuff, that's not going to actually help you in the long run, then like it's good to do a spot check and be like, okay, maybe I should change my purchasing habits. So there, there was an interesting article that was written by this woman. Oh, and the the other book, by the way, is um, is called The Color of Money, and it's mm-hmm. written by a woman named Marissa Bataradon. And I really want to bring her on the show. I hope she comes on. Um, I think she's just brilliant, and she does. She talks about black banking and black banks, and how having black banks will not solve the issues that black people have and she talks about how european immigrants and this is part of you know the argument that i used to always hear from my conservative you know white friends they'd be like you know my grandfather came from the old country pick your old country (laughs) you know what i mean my grandfather came from the old country he didn't speak english he blah 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 and now we've got this you know why can't black people do that And she basically breaks that down. Like she talks about, for example, Italian-Americans who, when they came to this country, uh, Italian-Americans were not considered white, you know, like, and this is again, and like, you know, I've been avoiding the conversation about critical race theory. One of the things about critical race theory, just really briefly, Mm -hmm. one of the things about it that I think you would agree with is the social construction of race is that there's that, you know, there's nothing or at least very little about race that is biological. Race is socially constructed. Mm-hmm. So the differences between you and me, you know, are just basically literally skin deep or, you know, 
hair right. follicle deep. That right. it's one of my criticisms of critical race theory. Actually, is that yeah, it, but it, it says it says that while also emphasizing race essentialism. It's schizophrenic. No, it doesn't. That's a misunderstanding. But we, we that's that's not the point that I'm getting at. But you know, as, as an Italian American, you know, your great grandfather, you know, would not have been considered a white person. He was a would have been seen as an olive-skinned, um, you know, foreigner who spoke a Latin language. So almost looked at like a like a Mexican or something like that, or. A, or someone from Central America. Um, but with time, with time, that changed as they got integrated into whiteness. And the benefits of that whiteness, you know, is why they were able to build wealth. Part of it is the banks and the Bank of Italy, which was able, you know, which started here in the United States. Um, and, or, you know, it's part started here in the United States and is now Bank of America, by the way, was the Bank of Italy. Um, and Italian Americans were able to do certain things with their banking industry that African Americans have never been able to do. And without the amount, with the small amount of wealth and business ownership, which black people were kept out of that class for so many generations, there's no way that that just having black banks and putting your money in a black bank is going to actually help you know to create this this amount of wealth that will transform african american communities and there's actually a study that says that african americans everything being equal which we've already acknowledged it it is not mm -hmm. everything being equal today it would take them 228 years to catch up to whites in terms of wealth in this country but for things. And that's ask, everything being, can no, I ask no a, discrimination. Can I ask a, an explanation for an explanation here? If you're, when you say whites, are you like including like Jeff Bezos? Is that like, do we include like the mega billionaires in assessment like that? Um, I think that they would, would be included because partially because we can include Oprah. We can include, uh, I think, you know, Michael Jordan and uh, Puff Daddy, but you start to realize that there are so few of them. You know, I think there's five black billionaires. Kanye West just made it in. You know, I think the guy like who founded five. the guy who founded BET. Um, no, he's not a billionaire anymore. Oh, he's not anymore. No, divorce. <laughs> Damn, it always gets yeah. you. Um, no, but there, there, there's uh, Robert Smith is a billionaire. He's a billionaire. Uh, Robert Johnson, who you're thinking of, is not a billionaire. Who sent me an email once. Um, <laughs> you should probably have him on the show. He loves to talk about reparations. He believes in reparations. Yeah. Um, but he's, I think he's worth about 600 million now. Damn. And also he's made some, you know, some investments that weren't necessarily the best for his pockets. Gotcha. Okay. Well, anyway, I just, I just think it's worthwhile. I get, I get nervous about statistics because I'm like, oh man, like there's a huge difference between an average and a median. You know what I mean? I, I know you know what I mean, but it's like, it's like sure. people, people play games with stats and I'm like, okay, like break it down. Like for real. Cause like Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, this has never been seen before in American history in world history. These absurdly wealthy people that it really does throw off meaningful statistical analysis on, um, 
the discrepancies you're referring to. I, I'm gonna, I wanna ask you a question that I think might require like 10 episodes or maybe at least a whole nother episode. <laughs> so I'm not sure it'll be required. At the foundation of a lot of your questions, it's basically like, hey, what are the external factors that are holding black Americans back, especially black Americans who are not succeeding like you are? Um, what is it like what percentage of any of those factors, the things that are holding black Americans back are internal, aren't external? Like what kind of things are sort of self-determined and like how should we view that debate? Because I feel like the, the big, the national conversation revolves around constantly external factors, like what's holding black Americans back, but never, almost never about internal factors. Like, is there meaningful stuff that's holding black Americans back? And also let me add one other element to this reparations debate or conversation we're having is the reparations conversation kind of feels like the Juneteenth conversation. Like it's a way for politicians to pretend like they're doing something meaningful yeah. for economically impoverished people. And they're not actually making the kinds of reforms that would actually lift people out of poverty. And they love things like this because they're distractions and they're, they don't actually require that much of a commitment. Um, and that's what, like, I think, I mean, you kind of said it actually when we talked about Juneteenth, like while you're appreciative of Juneteenth, you kind of see the argument that it's like, okay, this isn't really doing anything for people. It's just like throwing a holiday on the calendar. Um, I guess, let me go, let me, I'll just let you start with that first question. Like, is it meaningful to talk about the percentage breakdown between sort of factors within black America? And I hate using that phrase because I feel like we're one country, but that's, that's a useful way to describe it, I guess, among black Americans and the external forces without, and how do you break up that split? So there's, there's um, so before I get to, to that question, I do want to want to say one thing. Number yeah. one, uh, since we're, you know, we're coming to a close here. Number one, you, you mentioned the fact that, you know, or we both mentioned 30% of African-Americans don't believe in reparations. Then right. I think that 30% of African-Americans should be able to opt out, you know, of that home equity. We'll see how many they actually do. You know, oh, I oppose it, but I, I guarantee you, when they're when they're able, uh, faced with the opportunity to get uh, a way to create wealth for their families, uh, that's been denied their ancestors. I think they're probably going to opt in. But but I think it should be open. You should be able to say, no, I want to do this on my own. Uh, I'd be one hundred percent open to that. Um, I do think that it is useful. Um, oh, and another statistic I just wanted to throw out there in, in a study about this. And this, again, they separated in this study, they separated, you know, Black Americans or African Americans from Afro-Caribbean people, Afro-Latino people. They, they separated it, you know, they met the descendants of, of enslaved Africans in the United States. And in this study, they did it for the Boston area and the wealth of the average white person in Boston, or in median, this is the median. I don't think Jeff Bezos lives in Boston. Um, and Tom Brady left. Robert Kraft is still there. Um, but anyway, point being, the median, I believe, was $247,500. Mm. You wanna take a guess what the median for black people was? 
Just based on the way you said that, mm, 35,000. Okay, good guess. Eight. 8,000. No, eight dollars. Eight, oh, come on. No. Oh, median wealth? Oh, media, okay. Is that what you said, median wealth? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so you're talking about net worth, right? Yeah, eight dollars. Okay, first of all, eight dollars um, is better than I was at just a couple, like a couple years ago. I was like, like, <laughs> like my home mortgage put me at like negative six figures. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I mean, you had some equity in the home, though. You know what I mean? So I think yeah, that's true. Count. But my liabilities were greater than my assets. So therefore, you know, you know, you understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah, but if, I, I don't. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll send you the study and we'll, we'll see how they calculate it. But okay, I think gotcha. if you own a home, they, they actually you know, would, would put that, I think many of these people didn't own homes. Yeah. Um, and we're victims to a lot of predatory things that affect, uh, people who are in those communities. Last thing, but your, your thing about where African-Americans, you know, the percentage between, um, basically how much is any person responsible for what's going on in their life versus external factors? If you're black. Oh, I, I think that this conversation should happen. And this conversation does happen all the time. Go to any black church in America, which most white people won't go. You know, they talk about, I don't want to be categorized by race. They wouldn't even step foot in a black church. Well, and, if you call your, if, but if you identify as like kind of a black church, like, doesn't that make sense that mostly black people go there? I don't think they call it. I've never seen the black church of America. I see but like, I, Church of Jesus Christ or Church of, not Church of Jesus Christ, but you, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely not a black church. But, you know. Uh, you like know, an AME church. Yeah, a, but even, I mean, AME is a small portion. There are Baptist churches, all of that. There will mm -hmm. be a Baptist church that's a white church and a Baptist church that's a black church, and they're side by side. Literally, yeah. that was my experience growing up, and we used to wave at the white folks that came out of church. We come out well, of church in, at the same time. We had separate parking lots, in, and we would uh, go in and supposedly worship the same God. But that's yeah. In in uh, in the Philadelphia suburbs, for instance, this was all over the place in the United States. The Catholic Church. It wasn't until recently uh, started like quote unquote integrating uh, all of the uh, the congregations because. Um, you would go block by block, like in the suburbs in Philly, and you'd have the Polish church, the Italian church. I mean, you're like it'd be literally block mm -hmm. by block. And that was that's a recent development, actually. Yeah, but I think some of that is linguistic. Like you probably had the Italian church in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, because mm -hmm. it was like people spoke Italian, you know, and the Polish church, people spoke Polish. Right. Now, in other words, I, I think that makes sense though. It's like that's different with African Americans and white Americans who speak the same language. I guess so, but there are cultural, there are actual cultural distinctions. Yeah, no, sure. And so I'm, people, I'm not even against it necessarily. I'm just saying that many wouldn't even come to that church. Gotcha, I'm sorry, right, I'm, I'm interrupting you. Go ahead, make your point. Yeah, no, 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 I, I think you're, you're right um, that black churches celebrate black culture. And as a matter of fact, um, one of the things Malcolm X said, um, which, some people may find offensive, whatever. But, <laughs> you know, one of the things that Malcolm X once said was only a fool would allow his enemy to teach his children. So when you talk about. Yeah. Amen. Which, which, by the way, no one is teaching critical race theory to grade school children. But no. But it's a point, framework. The point is. That. I actually don't think schools should be responsible for that. 
You know, I think if you want to teach your child, you know, I think churches and other black institutions, I mean, it'd be nice. I think it's important that white kids hear, but if their parents are so like, oh, we don't want to hear about American history. We don't want to hear about the things that we named throughout this show, talking about, you know, what, uh, you know, our country has done or been complicit in against black people. We don't want to hear that. We just, you know, we want to talk about Christopher Columbus the way I always heard it. Um, that's fine. I mean, it's not something that I think is good for us as a society to actually unify. We should actually acknowledge what we did. The Germans do it, but we, we for some reason, don't want to talk about that. You're I think what needs to happen, I think, is Black institutions need to do those sorts of things. Black institutions need to hold, you know, one of the things that you will go in any black church. And this was one thing that Obama was criticized for. He went into a black church and he said, black men, you need to start doing more for your families. Right. And people were upset because of course- You can't say that anymore. I think you all- Not, not if you're you Obama. haven't been to a black church. They say no, 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 it literally no, no, every no, Sunday. You're right about that. I hear I'm, that all the I'm, time. I'm certain you're right about that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Obama. Obama can't say that anymore. No, he can't. And and he shouldn't say it outside of, I think the criticism was that, you know, in that black church, it's a black environment with black people and black, you know, there's always, I love my wife's church when I go on Sundays. I love it because you see there's this elderly white couple there. And, you know, I've always wondered what their story was, but, you know, they're just two kind of elderly white folks and they're, you know, raising their hands and praising the Lord and doing all those things. And they're surrounded by a sea of black people. You know, there's there's Latinos in there and there's some interracial couples. But they are an elderly white couple who said, this is our church home. And I was like, you know, I'm impressed by that because most white Americans wouldn't do that. You know, they wouldn't look around and say, these are human beings. I like the message here. This is our home, you know? And that's, until we start doing that, until, you know, we, we can actually say that since we worship the same God, we can worship in the same place. What was it, uh, you know, the most segregated hour in America is 10 a.m. In, in, on, on Sunday. Um, I think we're, we're in a place where, of course, we're not gonna allow our children to hear the true history of, of the United States and what the United States has done to black people and indigenous people and Japanese people in order to actually make us a better union. Jason. You know, I've never heard us making, I'll just say one last thing in this room. Yeah, yeah. I've never heard of improving yourself by just sitting there, sitting on your laurels and talking about everything great you did. Right. You never get better that way. That's if exactly body, right. If you're working out, Somebody says you need to slap more weight on. You're 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 slacking. Yeah. Go you're, and work harder. Your and form is bad. Right. Exactly. You know what I mean. And that's what I think. You know, teaching our children true history would do. That's exactly right. So this is I'm about to make an argument that you will not like at all. But my <laughs> argument, my argument is going to be, be this. the first time. My my argument is going to be this: the parents who are standing up to uh, race essential essentialism broadly, but under the rubric of critical race theory. The ones who are doing this are doing it not out of 
opposition to learning about race and the history of slavery in the United States. There hasn't been a single piece of legislation that has sought to stop that, for instance. All this anti the anti-CRT legislation that you're seeing throughout the states, none of that. That would be insane. Why would we foreclose? Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that's true, but go ahead. go ahead. But why would we foreclose on teaching about history? That's absurd. Critical race theory, as it's being applied abstractly now from, from its beginnings as a legal doctrine in the 80s, is has been a vehicle for race essentialism throughout the country. So where, where you're teaching young children about uh, being the, 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 con the Marxist concepts of oppressor versus oppressed and that um, there's some that there's something inherent about racism based on the color of your skin, that there's that um, sort of, that you are in a victim category on the on the basis of the color of your skin. This is this is divisive anti-intellectual um, nonsense, really. And what I mean by that is because I, I, I think it's I honestly think it, it's vile the way that it's manifesting itself because it is pitting people against each other and placing such a heavy emphasis on race that it's encouraging them to adopt and to live up to a tribal identity rather than, as you mentioned before, the idea that recognizing that race is this social construct that we should defeat and we should not allow to dictate um, destiny, that we shouldn't say race is destiny at all. And so for that reason, um, the world that I want to see in schools is a world where people are taught the robust, full history of the United States with a healthy appreciation for what a unique experiment this has been and what we're trying to accomplish. It's, it's, un, it's unseen in human history what we're attempting to accomplish uh, with this country, with this multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-faithed uh, country that has succeeded so much, but that's, that's a fragile thing. And in order for it to succeed, we do have to tether ourselves together and find that commonality rather than to emphasize that we uh, divisions and, and to exacerbate those divisions. <clears throat> so when I see people talking about like, well, you have people, parents who are opposed to learning about race and slavery, that is not my impression at all. I, I think that that has been a straw man that's been assembled. I'm not talking about by you, but it, it is essentially the argument that you were making a moment ago. Yeah, no, uh, it a, is a straw, the argument that I'm a, making. A straw, man, <laughs> a straw man that's been assembled to argue for why it is important that a race essentialism framework is put into our institutions. And I think that that is, um, it's a dark road for the country. I don't think it's good because it's, it, it comes from a world like the Ibram Kendi kind of world of, we need to use um, what he refers to anti-racist discrimination to redress discrimination. Discrimination is the thing that should be pulled out entirely and to reintroduce it into our systems is a way to divide people not to unite them so i, I definitely i know that we we've got to come to a close here and this is why i never want to talk about critical i know because theory. what we're uncorking for sure yeah because uh you know we could go down a really long road with critical race theory um critical race theory i learned it in graduate seminars most people learn it in, in law school. And like I mentioned, Kevin Cruz, he actually has a really interesting quote. He's like, if your child is learning critical race theory, congratulations, your child is in law school. Um, but I just want to read you this one quote from the guy who actually uh, rose this 
or brought uh, critical race theory uh, to the consciousness of Americans around the world. I think his name is Chris Rufo. And this is his quote, cancel culture is a vacuous term and doesn't translate into a political program. Woke is a good epithet, but it's too broad, too terminal, too right. easily brushed aside. Critical race theory is the perfect villain. This is mm -hmm. all partisan BS. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is not because if you're okay with your child learning about Indian removal, if you're okay with your child learning about slavery and, and its true horrors, if you're okay with your child learning about what happened uh, post-slavery and post-reconstruction, you're yeah. okay with your child learning that, yes, there were times where people were lynched, people were denied opportunities, right. people were beaten in the streets, and the fact that we, as the United States of America, really as a le legally just started to redress some of this, or not even redress, address some of this in the 1960s in, a, in an era where probably those kids' grandparents were still alive and some of their grandparents were adults. I think that, you know, it's important. Um, if, if that's like the kind of education that you want to give your child, we will never get past um, many of the racial divisions that we have in our society. There is nothing critical race theory and critical theory broadly, and I'm going to just end it here, but is all about it. This isn't about individuals. It's about structures. That's what critical theory is all about is like, it's not about individuals. It's not about, so these people saying, I see like this picture of this little girl holding up a sign that says, I'm not an oppressor. And that's literally what critical race theory is teaching. And one of the things that critical race theory says is it's an optimistic theory. It basically says that all of this can be defeated and, and we can use the legal framework within the United States to do so. But, you know, people realize that it's the perfect villain because it has that dirty word of race in it. And then people start saying, well, it's racial essentialism and all that when it, it's not. And your kid is not learning that. Your kid in second grade, not your, not you specifically, right, but right. your kid in second grade is learning how to read five letter words. You know what but I mean? It's that's also, what your but, kid is learning. But that's not, that's, that's a bit of a feint, I would say, because th that a framework, an educational framework is not the actual topic that somebody learns, right? So my child isn't learning common core, you know, for instance, like common core is the ed educational framework through which uh, you develop lessons that are, as at the academic level are informed by, okay, how do we create lessons that lead people to conclusions? So that's what, so critical race theory is a framework. It's a legal framework, but it's been trans, it's been transposed in a bunch of different disciplines, sure. uh, including academics and sociology. And so as a result, sure. as a result, you have, um, you know, it's, it's not impossible to say that like, okay, this lesson for these children was informed by a critical race theory framework. That's real. That's definitely happening. Uh, I, well, I will tell you again. If so, which I'm not convinced, there's nowhere in the country where it's been proven that critical race theory is being applied. And I and I would say, you know, your your average teacher, kindergarten teacher, probably in their background is not a whole lot of critical theory or critical race theory 
or critical legal theory. But what I will say about this is, you know, teaching about how our systems have been used to, you know, after this long conversation we had, teaching about how our systems have been used to discriminate against people yeah. uh, is not a bad thing. And I would say that Black institutions, if they're not going to learn it at the school, I think you're absolutely right that Black and Brown institutions and Native American institutions have the responsibility to teach their kids um, true history and teach their kids that they have a responsibility to their families, they have a responsibility to their culture, they have a responsibility in some ways to the future of their nation if other families aren't going to take that same responsibility because we know that history repeats itself. That's why in Germany they learn about the, the Holocaust. That's why in other countries they learn about the, the yeah things and that our they've schools, done. Our schools should teach all of this for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. Right. Our schools should and teach that, history, no question. Absolutely. And you should like and subscribe and comment on our videos. We are really happy that you are here. And I would like to thank Vince for such a, a frank and honest conversation. Um, you know, this guy, we are honestly like, uh, if you've ever watched Seinfeld, what was it, the, uh, the Eskimo cookie or whatever? It's like... <laughs> I don't know the episode. I can't believe uh, yeah. I don't know the episode, but yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Where it was like, you know, an Eskimo pie or whatever. It was like, where he's like, yeah, see, it's it's perfect. It's black. It's white. It gets along <laughs> and it makes for a great cookie. That's what we want to do for the United States of America. Amen. Is, um, I like that. Actually come together and have these conversations. Doesn't matter if you're red or blue or black or white. Yeah. Um, we need to have these conversations and you're, I think you're only going to get this kind of an honest conversation on Vince and Jason save the nation, like subscribe and be on the lookout for more videos. Thank you so much, Vince. Peace out. God bless.